Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash HGF. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on non small cell lung cancer. This activity comprises three presentations featuring a multidisciplinary panel of experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I'm David Planchard. I'm thoracic oncology at Gustavo C. Vigier, France. Welcome to this panel discussion activity on the emerging role of CA-CAM5 in non-small cell lung cancer. We have a multi-country, multidisciplinary panel today. Joining me in the discussion are my colleague, Balaj Almos, a medical oncologist from Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, and Kate Kerr, Professor of Pathology at the Aberdeen University School of Medicine in Aberdeen, Scotland. Welcome, boss. Our goal today is to discuss and to achieve the understanding of what CECAM5 is, what it is a valuable target in non-small cell lung cancer, and how ADC can be utilized to take advantage of its expression, and particularly in non-small cell lung cancer. Also, the five years survival rate is relative high in early stage. It is poor in patients presented with metastatic disease, mainly due to primary and secondary resistance to first-line treatment, despite patients might be exposed in first-line to platinum-based chemotherapy and to immunotherapy. Unfortunately, a lot of patients will have a relapse, and we need to have better target. There is a significant unmet need, so for novel treatment regimen with alternative targets and mechanism of action in patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. So what did the CA-CAM5? CA-CAM5 belongs to a specific family, family of CE gene family, among 12 different proteins. It's a cell surface protein, which is generally overexpressed in a variety of tumors, including on small cell lung cancer, in comparison to the normal tissue. CRCAM5 expression promotes cell proliferation and migration, and its depletion can reverse this effect. Approximately 25% of patients with non-small cell lung cancer have CRCAM5 expression, making it a potential target of interest in treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. And we will see that particularly the non-squamous have a particular high expression of CRCAM5. Balage, we need a specific biomarker in non-small cell lung cancer. I don't know what is your feeling, but clearly nowadays we need to target specific treatment for this population. Absolutely, David. Of course, we've witnessed two incredible revolutions in, in lung cancer medicine with targeted therapies, you know, biomarker-driven, of course, as well as immunotherapies. And we're in the middle of a third revolution with antibody-based treatments. And we have to see how those get sorted out. Are these truly precision you know, molecules or are these you know, chemotherapies kind of dressed up in a, in a different way? So it's very important to have a major focus on identifying the proper targets, focus on biomarker development, and understanding the activity of these agents for very specific patient populations. And one of the leading entities in this particular um, you know, subset of, of new medicines is the CCAM5 targeting ADCs, where there's definitely biology 
of course, the CCAM family includes, you know, the well-known molecule CEA, you know, which is really CCAM5 in the circulation that we can measure. And, of course, all of us know that CEA we can measure in a very large percentage of, you know, colorectal cancers, but also in a subset of lung cancer patients. And it, it does turn out that it does have a biological significance. It's an adhesion molecule, and it, you know, it, it does, you know, impair apoptosis, and it helps in the metastasis and proliferation process. So, Targeting it makes sense. And that's mean, and probably question for, for Keita. Biomarkers here come fiber. You know well the, the biomarker, and you think this is a, a valuable biomarker potentially for the lung field? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I, I think it potentially is uh, a valuable biomarker, provided that the, the drugs show uh, clinically significant efficacy, which they, it looks as if they will. And in order to enrich the population that is going to benefit, it does make some sense that the the target of the ADC is the biomarker. Uh, after all, we are in a slightly different place from some of our other targeted therapies in the sense that we're, we're not trying to offset the function of the target, CEA, although it has some oncogenic promoting functions, and we understand that the principal um, function of the drug uh, in terms of using the, the the biomarker target is as an access point to the tumor cell. Um, and in the sense that it, it's a relatively frequent uh, or relatively frequently highly expressed, therefore the access points are prominent on the surface of the tumor cells and therefore it, it makes a lot of sense as a particular biomarker. By itself, um Can it have a role in terms of pronostic factors? Yeah, uh, I think you have to be, just to pick up on your last point first, um, you have to be a little bit careful about the interpretation of biomarkers in blood because that might be simply a marker of disease burden. And that's mean for you, it's probably better to look on the tissue than to look this biomarker in the blood. If I, I... we don't know yet. Um, that's a different question. We have to. We just need to gather data and, and check that out. The other thing you have to remember is that um, other disease processes may upregulate um, uh, CEA as detected in the blood, particularly affecting the GI tract. So, if the patient has intercurrent other disease, it, it may confound your data. So, Belage, in terms of biomarker for the CA, this is something quite old, finally, and we used, and probably in some countries, and some oncology, they followed patients with a CA level in the lung field. Is it something you do in your clinical practice, or you think it's relevant just as a biomarker to look at the kinetic evolution under treatment? Sure. Excellent question, David. We don't routinely use CA or other tumor markers in the United States to monitor patients with non-small cell lung cancer. That being said, of course, we use it all the time for patients with GI malignancies, very specifically colorectal cancer. As you mentioned, in some countries it's used routinely, and it actually does turn out that dynamic monitoring of CAA can give you a sense of disease burden and how patients respond to treatment. So it's not so an easy biomarker, and for sure probably we'll have further discussion. Every pathologist knows how heterogeneous uh, CEA may be expressed in in a, in a tumor. Um, uh, it may be present in one area of the tumor, not in another. Um, so how the small biopsy 
um, and the assessment that we make there uh, reflects the overall disease burden is, is again going to be influenced to some extent by the heterogeneity of expression and how good our sample is. But um, the clinical indications are certainly giving us a sign that, that it is a way of enriching and that tells me that the biomarker is, you know, reasonable performer um, uh, on the IHC um, assessment. Probably, Belaj, uh, you can comment on all the different ADC that are coming in the in non-small cell lung cancer, which is quite impressive in terms of new family of uh, of treatment for the for the lung field. Uh, very impressive indeed, David, and, and we have an embarrassment of riches in a way in terms of all these ADCs that are being developed. And uh, you know, just just a, a small list that you know we're discussing here between HER2, HER3, trope to seek emphysemat. For small cell lung cancer, there's another set. Uh, you know, some key aspects of these ADCs are. They have an antibody portion that, that provides the precision targeting. That's kind of the GPS, you know, portion of the molecule. There's a very important linker associated with it. That's the proprietary uh, portion of many of them. Very important how stable these linkers are. Are they cleavable? If they're cleavable inside the cell that, that, that offers some kind of bystander uh, potential, you know, for these molecules. And then the payload, of course, is very important as well. And that's why, you know, these precision agents are so important. So these highly toxic therapies can be delivered precisely into the cells where the toxicity is needed. And just thinking about CCAM5, the payload is DM4, a metensinoid, which is a tubulin targeting agent, 100 times as potent as, uh, for example, docetaxel. Now we need to sort it out. How does it make an impact for our patients and which patient subsets you know, should be targeting with these molecules. It's, it's, it's really impressive, uh, uh, as you already uh, discussed and, uh, and present all these uh, first generation of ADC. So we hopefully we can develop a lot more of these ADCs in a, in a very similar effective fashion. But again, the biomarker is key for HER2. You know, it's now you know, very well validated. For CCAM5, we'll have to see how the IAC will work out. It's complex and probably much more complex uh, if we're talking here about uh, CCAM5 because uh, there is potentially uh, a lot of different role of, of CCAM5 in tumor cells uh, because for sure it's making the bridge between the different tumor cells uh, and might promote uh, the cell growth suppression uh, contact inhibition. It's probably an important role of CCAM5. It can also interact probably with the immune system and particularly with CCAM1 which is present on natural killer on dendritic cells. And so it might result of uh, in an immune evasion when you have this interaction between CRCAM5 and CRCAM1 on the natural killer and the dendritic cells. And so if we need to target this, uh, particularly in the tumor cells, uh, we know that potentially um, it's uh, overexpressed in the tumor cells versus normal cell. Uh, Kate, uh, do you uh, on phase that we have a really strong differentiation of expression between the normal cells and the tumor cells? Generally speaking, yes. Uh, you can find uh, uh, some CEA expression in, uh, in normal cells, particularly on the surface of uh, some cells in the epithelium of the GI tract, for example, but it, it's also expressed in uh, relatively low levels um, in some other organs, um, such as the salivary glands, uh, the prostate, 
Um, you can find a little bit sometimes, depending on how your assay is working, in uh, the uh, even in the respiratory epithelium in the bronchi. But uh, certainly in tumors, where uh, the um, dynamic of uh, gene expression changes, and often, uh, as I mentioned earlier, some of the genes that are associated with um, embryogenesis are, are reactivated. Um, we find that in colorectal cancer in particular, as we've heard already, uh, but particularly in non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, and really what by that we mean adenocarcinomas of the lung, you'll find uh, a, a proportion of uh, lung adenocarcinomas express CEA at, at very high levels. And one question, but I don't know if you have the answer. Do you know between the primary site, metastatic site, uh, if we have the same expression, if you have some uh, liver, adrenal gland metastasis, bone metastasis, uh, can we expect to have the same expression if we measure the CRCAM5 on the, on the lung, for example? Um, the literature is um, a little bit variable on the subject, but there is a tendency for... Uh, the expression to be higher in metastatic sites than in the primary tumour. Uh, this, again, makes some intuitive sense, uh, given that the uh, overexpression may be associated with and possibly a promoter of, we're not sure, chicken and egg situation, um, but, but it is associated with disease progression, and, and therefore it makes sense that we, on average, might find a, a bit more in metastatic disease. And, and when we're talking, because it's mainly by immunohistochemistry, Kate, uh, when we're talking about strong positive, high positive, that means it, it's more than 50% of positivity on the tumor cells? Huh? Well, th this again is, is a crucial detail, uh, David, but at least we have a definition for this assay, which is more half, half or more of the tumor cells showing uh, two plus or three plus level of staining. That's the definition of high. And that's, that's okay. That's a reasonable line in the sand and, and pathologists can deal with that. Thank you, Kate. And it's, uh, so much things to do and to, to learn about this, uh, is biomarkers here, CAM5. Uh, we had a huge discussion with Belage and for sure we have so many ADC ongoing in clinical trial, phase one, phase two, and nowadays in phase three, uh, in non-small cell lung cancer, so for sure it's, uh, it's really exciting. Biomarker probably will be the major field uh, to better select all these type of ADC, CIRCAM5. It's clearly overexpressed, particularly in non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, so it's make a good population to be targeted with specific uh, ADC, and we'll have some discussion about the, the ADC that target particularly the CIRCAM5. Thank you so much, uh, Kate and, uh, and Belage for all the, the discussion about this uh, part on the CRCAM5 expression and the lung field. Hello, my name is uh, Dr. David Planchard. I'm thoracic oncologist at Gustave Rossi VG France. Welcome to the second part of this uh, panel discussion activity on the emerging role of CRCAM5 in non-small cell lung cancer. We have a multi-country, multidisciplinary panel today. Joining me in the discussion are my colleague, uh, Balaj Almos, a medical oncologist from Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, and Kate Kerr, professor of pathology at the Aberdeen University School of Medicine in Aberdeen, Scotland. Welcome both for this second part. 
before we can target CRCAM5 in non-small cell lung cancer, we have to confirm it presents. And for sure, biomarker, it's always challenging in non-small cell lung cancer. And for, for the second part, our discussion will explore best practice as we know them for identify CRCAM5 expression. Immunostochemistry is still the key. Data still the key, or can we probably have new biomarker? But probably, let's look at what we know about CRCAM5 expression in the lung. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, uh, with the knowledge that we have at the moment and the technology that we use in the pathology lab at the moment, uh, immunostochemistry is the go-to technique for sure. Um, identification of proteins by other methodologies uh, can be pretty tricky um, and primarily we're looking at tissue proteomics in that sense and uh, this is a much more difficult technology to use particularly at scale and for rapid turnaround in laboratories and is really it's just a not a clinically viable alternative at the moment may never be so uh, immunohistochemistry is where the money is um, if we're talking about looking at the expression of the biomarker in uh, tumour tissue. Um, I guess an alternative would be to look at mRNA, but if you had a choice of immunohistochemistry or looking at mRNA expression as a surrogate of the probable level of expression in the tissue, um, it's protein IHC every day in our sample. But that's been... It's always tissue. Generally, we biopsy the patient at baseline. It's sometimes challenging to re-biopsy the patient between each line of treatment and probably Belash, you, you can come on, but uh, even in Europe, it's always challenging to have fresh tumor tissue biopsy. Uh, yeah. So, so th th this is one of those inevitable mm. questions and uh, Belash will uh, be able to make, make a comment, but I, I, I'll, I'll begin on this one. The, the first thing to remember is that, again, going back to the clinical trial, because we, we need to base our practice on the data that we have that were generated in those trials. The samples were taken at baseline before the patient had their first-line treatment. And the biomarker works to a, to a, a clinically acceptable extent, um, I would say. Um, so what we don't know is whether there is a need for a rebiopsy. Um, we also don't know if the intervening first-line therapy changes the disease, the, the sorry, the uh, biomarker expression in the patient's disease. If there is a, a change in expression, then there's a stronger argument for uh, rebiopsy. Um, but we don't have the data to make that assessment. The question about rebiopsy and its difficulty, of course, is something, it's a separate question, one that we can debate, but I'm not the guy having to sit in front of the patient and suggest we need to rebiopsy, and Balash will have a, a better perspective on that one. Certainly happy to comment that rebiopsy is just as challenging on this side of the Atlantic Ocean than, you know, on yours. Uh, but yes, indeed, if, it, if it's helpful, it can be done. And of course, we've learned this through the era of targeted therapeutics, if, if it's important to learn about tumor biology as it evolves under the pressure of targeted therapies, thinking about acquired resistance, 
we obtain them. But how nice is it to have CTDNA technology to complement what we do? That type of technology currently does not exist for, you know, protein, uh, you know, levels. There's no circulating tumor cell studies that we can confidently use. Maybe with time, you know, that will develop. We will talk about circulating CA as a potential complement for the tissue-based testing. But I think at the moment, the likelihood is that it is going to have to be tissue-based IHC that will guide us for the development of this particular molecule. And the baseline tissue is, is not difficult to obtain. We definitely get it. And as part of the biomarker testing platform that we might want to do for our patients, adding an extra IHC might not be so challenging. How helpful will that IHC be in terms of impacting patient care? That's what we'll need to see. If the drug is very active and is clearly biomarker-driven, we'll definitely do, we'll do our best to integrate it into our practices. Yeah. I I'm, I'm, I'm totally agree. Huh? It's, uh, it's always challenging, and particularly you can discuss with the patient, particularly if you have a specific targeted drug for which you need to prove something, why not? Huh? But probably, and Kate will comment, but need to work and to have better data and how it can variate according to the time, according if patients have been pre-exposed to platinum-based chemotherapy, to immunotherapy, do we change the expression of CRCAM5? Currently, uh, we don't have any data. Yeah, and I, and I think this this question also raises another more practical issue, particularly for uh, us in the pathology um, side of the, the care pathway, because um, only a proportion of patients get to second-line treatment. Only a proportion of those patients uh, might be candidates for uh, CCAM5. So it's not clear to me precisely when a CCAM5 IHC assay would be carried out. And I know in some countries around the world, um, you're, you're actually not reimbursed for doing a test at uh, baseline where that test will inform a treatment decision in second or greater line. So th th there will be some complications around this and it's difficult to know how things will, will fall out. And, and this is another reason why, of course, pathologists need to learn to be very careful in how they handle the tissue, um, bearing in mind that the patient might need more biomarker testing down the line, uh, and so not to burn it all at first visit. So yet another reason for, A, getting adequate tissue at the get-go, and secondly, being real careful with it when we're using it. And so that's mean, Kate, uh, it, we have the same question for the PD-1 and PDL one So that means specificity, sensitivity of the antibody will be probably something quite crucial, particularly to evaluate CRCAM5. So because currently, do we know which is the best antibody in terms of specificity, sensitivity to evaluate the good target according to the ADC, which part it will bind to the protein? So I, at the moment, um, I, I have a very specific response to that. As I alluded to earlier, the, the, the best biomarker to use is the one that was validated in the clinical trial. And that biomarker, antibody IHC assay, was developed for the trial and the antibody in that IHC test detects the same anti epitope on the CCAM5 molecule, molecule as does the drug. So it has to be the correct biomarker in my view. Um, sure. However, 
all sorts of questions will come up, and you will remember them, David, from uh, the PDL1 experience and, and the question around um, laboratory developed tests, which I know in, in France, for example, are, are very popular. This question will come up for CEA, and it will be particularly an issue here because pathology uh, departments and pathologists have, are very familiar with doing CEA immunohistochemistry, and they've been doing it for decades. And so there will be a lot of pressure and a lot of challenge to use alternatives, which inevitably will be cheaper, but they may not give the same answer. But that's mean we have to make cautious also if we are looking biomarker in the blood. If we just measure the CA, we don't know exactly if we're measuring the good epitope in comparison to the tissue and to the target of the ADC, correct? Correct. Belacha, can't we imagine that finally for this type of ADC, we need a huge amount of target on the tumor cells or finally only one or two protein might be enough finally for the ADC to reach the target and to be efficient? Uh, excellent question. And, and again, I think the clinical trials, you know, will be so important to conduct so that, that we get answers to these, you know, correlating it with the biomarker tissue heterogeneity. As we mentioned, the molecule itself has some potential advantages in terms of having a cleavable linker. So there could be some potential bystander effect. So if, even if there's some tissue heterogeneity of expression, if there's high expressing cells, there could be some potential that maybe the benefit will be translated to nearby you know, cells as well, but, you know, we, we need to learn that from clinical studies. And also, what is the benefit, not just in terms of the response rate, but how durable those responses will be? How much is that dependent, again, on, on the biomarker, you know, presence, expression? And what are the resistance mechanisms to these novel molecules? Is it simply loss of expression? If CKM5 is not biologically that relevant, maybe that's an easy way for the tumor to develop resistance. Again, those we, we will need to learn. But if the molecule, if the, if the ADC is helpful for our patients, we'll, we'll, we'll be ready to, you know, uh, overcome those challenges for sure. Let's make a lot of challenge. Kate, yes. Yeah, if I could come in here and just make a comment on, on, on your question, uh, which is an important one, David, because th there are um, ADCs being developed where uh, it doesn't seem to matter or matter mm -hmm. so much how much of the protein or how much detectable protein there is on the surface of the tumor cell, the drug seems to work uh, reasonably well. Um, and as Balash mentioned, one of the mechanisms is maybe the bystander effect, although if you look again at the clinical trials, the, the, the data that we have so far, whilst in the very high expressors, um, the, there was uh, a response rate of over 20%, and we may discuss this later, and if we confirm that finally it's important to measure the CKM5 level um, to select the patient for the specific ADC, uh, probably the earlier we will be able to do, better it will be to anticipate uh, probably the second line of treatment because uh, it's always challenging to rebiopsy the patient, to wait. Uh, and we know generally the patients are symptomatic when they progress, so we have a short time uh, to make the biopsy, molecular analysis to decide for the treatment. So, But uh, there is a lot of uh, questions uh, do we have the same CKM5 expression at baseline post-chemo and immunotherapy? It's another important question we will need uh, to try to answer in, in further clinical trial, but whatever. CKM5 uh, seems to be quite uh, promising. Uh, promising if the trial are positive and uh, 
let's discuss uh, after about the, the clinical trial and specific ADC to target uh, CIRCAM5. It was uh, really nice to have this uh, discussion on biomarkers. Thank you so much, Kate and, uh, and Belage, for all your, your input on this important part. Thank you. Hello, I'm David Planchard. I'm thoracic oncologist at Gustave Rossi, Vigri, France. Uh, welcome to this part uh, of the panel discussion activity on the emerging role of CIRCAM5 in non-small cell lung cancer. We have a multi-country, multidisciplinary panel today. Uh, join me in the discussion are my colleague uh, Balej Almos, a medical oncologist from Albertstein College of Medicine in New York, uh, and Kate Kerr, professor of pathology at the Aberdeen University School of Medicine in Aberdeen, Scotland. Welcome, both uh, for this panel discussion. So, what do we know currently uh, about the CIRCAM5 target ADC? Uh, many ADC are currently uh, ongoing in development and particularly uh, specific ADC to target uh, the CIRCAM5. Let's look at the most advanced currently uh, phase 1, phase 2 and ongoing in phase 3 clinical trial in non-small cell lung cancer. Tuzamitamab raftonzin, it's a potential first-in-class ADC that selective target CIRCAM5 expression on the tumor cells uh, and comprise a humanized monoclonal antibody. It's a EGG1, which is highly specific for the extra domain of the CIRCAM5, domain A3, uh, B3 of the CIRCAM5. It's covalently linked uh, to a potential cytotoxic, which is DM4. It's a tubulin inhibitor by a cleavable linker. The drug antibody ratio, it's 3.8, which is quite high, not the highest, but probably not the most important for the ADC. And so the tuzamitamab raftanzin will bind to CRCAM5, will be internalized, the cleavage of the disulfine linker, and will release the DM4 into the tumor cells directly to try to inhib the microtubule and have a cell arrest and apoptosis. So it's a nice mechanistic of this drug. And this drug have been developed in a phase one and after expansion of the phase one, particularly in non-small cell lung cancer, were CAM5 positive. Two different populations in this expansion cohort, either the high expression of CAM5, at least two plus in at least 50% on the tumor cells, and the moderate expression, it was 2 plus uh, between 1% up to 2% uh, of uh, the uh, tumor cells. Both populations, around 60 patients uh, in the high expression, around uh, 30 patients in the low expression. In this expansion cohort, uh, it was heavily pretreated patient. Most of the patients received at least two lines or three lines uh, of treatment. Uh, and around 80% of patients have been pre-exposited to a PD-1 or PDL-1 inhibitor. If we just focus uh, on the result, uh, the first result, and particularly uh, the on point, was overall response rate. Uh, and what it was observed in this pre-treated patient, uh, the patient high expression, high, higher response rate, uh, 20% in comparison to the moderate expression, around 7% uh, of response rate, uh, which is quite good finally to try to identify best responder who are the patient with a high CRCAM5. In terms of toxicity, uh, if we look with this type of ADC, you have the classical toxicity you can have, particularly with the chemotherapy, hematological toxicity, digestive toxicity, specific toxicity of interest uh, 
with this uh, ADC related to the DM4 in the corneal adverse event. Uh, it's related generally to the DM4 and around 27% of patients had a grade 1 or grade 2 toxicity and around 11% of patients had a grade 3 toxicity, mainly keratitis and keratopathy. So this is something we need to take in account uh, with this uh, specific ADC. Otherwise, uh, you can see there is uh, some specific neuropathy uh, toxicity that might take in account for this type of ADC. And most of this toxicity, ophthalmic toxicity and neurological toxicity generally uh, are completely reversible, particularly uh, you need some time to stop the drug and to diminish uh, the dose of the drug. Uh, and generally, you, you have a good evolution of this type of toxicity, which are completely reversible. I don't know, uh, probably uh, I, I can have a discussion for, for Bellage. Did, did you have some experiences with a, with a drug and this type of toxicity, particularly the corneal toxicity? Huh? Uh, you know, I find the molecule to be very, very encouraging, certainly. You know, beautifully developed, you know, very specific for CCAM5. Uh, doesn't interfere with other, you know, CCAM molecules, for example. As, as CCAM5 is really not expressed much in, in, in adult normal tissues that allows, you know, for a potential therapeutic window and it's nice to see that the drug seems to be biomarker-specific, so a precision molecule on a certain level, which I think is, is reassuring, you know, in terms of, you know, the biology and, and potential clinical impact of this agent. Um, um, as, as we mentioned, you know, for the high expressors, it seems to have, you know, stronger activity maybe in the range that it could really compete, you know, in the second-line ER context for that particular patient population. And the toxicity seems reasonable, but there's a particular challenge with, with the ocular toxicity, and we're learning now about you know, new types of cells in our body, the limbic stem, cells, stem epithelial cells that maybe these molecules uh, you know have some toxicity for. And working with our you know ophthalmology colleagues will be very important in, in in the careful development of these agents, but likely also when they become part of our practice. So again. You know, we need, we need to, you know, have, have good friends, you know, in other specialties. We're getting used to that, you know, with immunotherapy, you know, our gastroenterologist, rheumatologist, et cetera. So now, now you have to grab your ophthalmologist as well, which will be nice, you know, for, for a cup of coffee to make sure that uh, they, they help you out. If the drug is, is, is effective enough, then this is a roadblock, a challenge that I think we should be able to overcome as, as a medical community. I have exactly the, the, the same feeling. And so that means um, we use nowadays to work with all the different specialty, particularly with the immunotherapy that can give so many type of different toxicity. So I, I'm totally agree. Uh, we need to be aware about this type of uh, ocular toxicity. We have specific pulmonary toxicity with uh, other ADC that target uh, L2. Uh, we have this neuropathic toxicity, and I think it just be aware. And most of the time, just the fact to decrease the dose level of the drug and generally... Uh, the tolerability can go better for some patients. And so the fact it's completely reversible is also, also something completely reassuring. Kate, uh, the, the, the biomarker and, and the threshold again, that's mean for you more than 50%. Clearly it's high expression for the CACM5. Yeah. I, the, I, I think that definition of, of high expression, more than half or, or half or more of the tumor cells at two to three plus. It, it, it's, it's a metric we've seen before uh, with other biomarkers. It, it's not too complicated. Um, it's relatively easy, I think, to 
identify in samples. Uh, of course, we will need to go through the, the steps of inter-observer variability just to make sure that um, it's not um, problematic, but I would not expect it to be a problematic uh, biomarker in that sense. But those studies will be done, I'm sure. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, first of all, we need to be certain that the activity stands the 20% plus, uh, which will be very important to see as you know, more patients are being treated. You know, will that be competitive in the second line setting against docetaxel? On paper, it should be, but at the same time, we've seen a lot of drugs failing in, in, in that particular context despite earlier data. So we'll, we'll have to complete and, and see those studies, you know, how they read out. And with a 20% or so response rate, there, there's no chance that these drugs could be first line on their own, where we've made a lot of impact with immunotherapy frontline, either single agent for the high TPS score positive patients or in combinations with chemotherapy with a lot of activity. So the question will be, can we integrate ADCs into the frontline context with immunotherapy, with some sort of a chemotherapy-immunotherapy combination? So for a number of ADCs, that's a key question moving forward, and the same thing stands for CKM5. And it's nice to see kind of an early set of data on this, you know, from Dr. Passeres from a few months ago, where at least it seemed like, you know, there's combinability. The number of patients are still very small, so we need to see this data expand in terms of having a level of confidence. And there seemed to be some encouraging, encouraging activity, too. But here again, I just want to highlight that these are in combinations with the combination um, agents also having, um, you know, activities. I want to also highlight that as much as toxicity doesn't seem to be limiting as of yet, but, but, but there is toxicity when it, when it comes to the four drug combinations with doublet chemotherapy plus immunotherapy plus CKM5 uh, ADC. So there, there might be some limit as to, you know, how, how much drugs we can, we can combine in the frontline context. So that's just something to, to watch out for. For sure. It seems to be feasible. Combination with immunotherapy, combination with uh, immunotherapy plus, uh, plus uh, chemotherapy platinum based. For sure, we have to take in account the, the toxicity, quality of life for the patient. Uh, it's early data on the response rate. Need to have further data on the duration of response and particularly, uh, what about the, the, the PFS? Do we do better clearly than in comparison to the chemotherapy and immunotherapy? And uh, another question, can't we spare to expose patients to platinum-based chemotherapy? Ideally, it would be uh, ADC plus uh, immunotherapy and to try to keep a sequence with a platinum-based chemotherapy in second line. So, But quite nice to, uh, to have seen this data on the Carmen Lung uh, Delophile uh, seems to be uh, feasible. Many other uh, trials are, are currently ongoing, particularly with Tuzamitamab uh, Raftanzine. And quite interesting, and probably we can have some uh, interaction with, with Kate on the, the Carmen Lung six, because in this trial, they target, it's a phase two trial, just look at the response rate, and particularly patient with a low expression of CECAM5 or negative expression of CECAM5, but CEA in the plasma high. So can't we have this biomarker on the plasma instead, tissue biopsy and uh, measured by immunostochemistry? Uh, should be something quite interesting to, to, to give further data on the, on the blood testing for the CEA. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is, this is uh, clearly uh, a route that we need to go and 
something that needs to be uh, examined. Uh, we, we, we need to look in the blood and, and see uh, how predictive it can be and whether it is something that is good enough um, as an alternative, so we don't need to consider the immunohistochemistry at all, or is it something that you would consider only in those patients where the uh, immunohistochemistry is uh, the the other thing, the important thing that you alluded to earlier, David, was um, the how variable blood uh, CEA assays may be um, in in different laboratories. Um, how standardized are they as compared to the standardization of, of immunohistochemistry? Um, that's another, you know, another potential can of worms that uh, will have to be opened and examined for sure um, as we go down this uh, this route. For sure. And so hopefully also we have the Carmen Lung 03 trial, which is uh, the pivotal uh, trial in the CECAM5 High expressure that compares so this uh, the tuzamitamab raftanzin versus docetaxel. I hope it could be a positive trial. Belage uh, agree that nowadays we still have to beat the docetaxel in second line post chemo and IO. Very correct. Of course, we've seen disappointing data from the KRS G12C, you know, drug, you know, sotorasib in this particular context where everybody believed the study would be positive and it, it really, really wasn't. Um, and, you know, we'll have to see in the anti-trope two studies in the same context. There's been press releases of improved progression-free survival. Will that translate into an overall survival benefit? So there's still a huge, huge need in terms of uh, development and improvement. I'm definitely hopeful that the study will be positive. Uh, it needs to be completed. It's a large people study that, that needs to be our focus in the next, next year or two to make sure that information is available as, as soon as possible for the large field. Yes, uh, so hopefully uh, hope it might be a positive trial uh, to have uh, this uh, this new uh, possibility in this uh, in this area in second line of treatment, uh, and for sure a lot of other trials are currently ongoing, and particularly combination. So we have seen the combination for the first line, probably combination with other drugs like hamucirumab. There is a Carmen Lung therefore which is also ongoing with uh, anti-angiogenic treatment and fusamitamab uh, raftandine, which make a lot of sense and the preliminary data are quite. Uh, encouraging and let's see and other uh, drug that might target the CECAM5 you have the NEO uh, 201 which is a specific antibody just to target uh, CECAM5 and CECAM6 uh, in combination with pembrolizumab phase 1 phase 2 trial you have some new ADC like the M9140 uh, which also specific target uh, CECAM5 with a topoisomerase inhibitor as a, as a pilot so it's a Phase one dose escalation. So let's see what's uh, how the result. Uh, but for sure nowadays, uh, if uh, it's encouraging more and more uh, compound and more and more drug might come to target CACAM5 and probably why not other CACAM5 uh, CACAM uh, protein family. A lot of questions: uh, How to place the drug? What is the best drug in second line of treatment nowadays? It's still docetaxel. We need to do better than docetaxel in patients with no specific uh, oncology driver alteration. Uh, we need to do better in terms of progression-free survival, in terms of overall survival. This is the only way for sure to get access to the market and to be reimbursed in a lot of countries. We need to take in account also the toxicity. We need 
to know well the type of toxicity, particularly uh, with this type of drug, the ophthalmologic toxicity in terms of keratopathy, keratitis. Um, it's not an issue in our experiences, but for sure we need to work with the ophthalmologist uh, and anticipate this type of to toxicity, monitor the patient. Uh, it's a lot of things uh, to do and to learn. Biomarker, we have discussed a lot. I think it's probably the key point to better select the patient and to have the best uh, response rate, PFS, and overall survival. Uh, but so important data and uh, With this, I probably want to thank, because we have to stop, uh, thanks Kate um, and thanks uh, Belaj uh, for their participation, use discussion and impact uh, and the uh, knowledge in the field and hope uh, we can have further discussion in the, in the near future with a positive uh, result. Thank you so much. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.